Welcome to It Starts With Beer. I'm your host, Will Sis. Let's start with beer in the news. In the Rochester City newspaper, Gino Finelli focused on COVID-19's impact on craft breweries nationally and in New York. In his April 22nd piece titled Coronavirus is a Perfect Weapon Against Craft Breweries, he led with a telling stat. 60% of breweries polled in a recent nationwide survey reported that they couldn't survive more than three months under the business restrictions set out by their states to slow the spread of the novel coronavirus. He notes that the situation is not as bad in New York, but that their state brewers association is expecting a dimmer future nonetheless. He quoted their executive director, who said, It's not that what we're hearing isn't bleak. It's tough out there, but we're lucky to be able to adapt. Finelli writes that the pandemic is the perfect weapon against craft breweries. It annihilates the high-margin tap room sales, removes the keg distribution business, and forces belt nut tightening in an industry already operating on razor-thin margins. In local beer news, 23 Connecticut breweries so far have raised money for the CT Hospitality Employee Relief Fund, which was formed by the Connecticut Restaurant Association to provide emergency funding to hospitality workers. This according to the Connecticut Brewers Guild. Okay, today's show features Josh Norris, the recipe designer, brewer, operations manager of Witch Doctor Brewing in Southington, Connecticut. I probably had too much fun with the special effects on this one, but I'll let you be the judge. Let's listen in. All right, so for this, we're going to start off um, with something I'm calling really creatively the lightning round. And you're going to have about three seconds to answer each question. Do you understand? Oh, no. All yeah, right. <laughs> so this is about this is about not overthinking. OK, so I start All off. Right. I'm going to start off really clever. OK, which doctor? If you were a doctor, which medicine would you most likely practice? Beer. Beer medicine? Okay, fair enough. Favorite kind of music? Metal. Dream vacation? Tropics. Biggest fear? Failure. What hobby do you wish you had more time for? Music. All right, congratulations. You've won my attention. I was going to hang up if none of your answers were any good. And they were pretty good. <laughs> All right. So tell me more about, um, let's see, you're from Dayton, Ohio? I am. So uh, now, now, I don't know any, much about Ohio. Are you from Dayton proper? Or by saying Dayton, Ohio, you were from a suburb of Dayton, Ohio? I'm actually from a little town of less than a thousand people at the time anyway. I think it's grown since then. It's called Brookville. It's about... 20 miles west of Dayton. So what's to do in Brookville? 
Absolutely nothing. How does that shape a person like you? Um, well, it definitely gets you into hobbies and drinking. I imagine. <laughs> what were you like as a kid in, uh, in Ohio? Um, I did a lot of outdoors stuff. Um, running around in creeks and fields and stuff like that that kids don't do as much anymore these days. I see. Uh, what year were you born? Eighty-three. So you're 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 out there in the uh, late eighties, early nineties, running around in fields. Oh yeah, cornfields, little creeks, uh, ponds, rivers. And uh, as you were, you know, getting older, where did your interests carry you? Um, I think I start. I, I was always into science as a kid even as a young kid, and as I got older, well, I guess even as a young kid, I was into music, too. Uh, so those things both progressed with me throughout my whole life, basically. Uh, as I got to be about, I don't know, preteens kind of area, I started getting more into the music side of things, uh, got much more involved with that through high school and college years, got into some bands. Uh, I also got, I wound up doing engineering in college. Uh, so got, got more of my science going on. Now, when you say engineering, did you have a, a specialty that you kind of uh, moved towards? What kind of engineering was it? It was mechanical engineering. And I wound up uh, mostly in the aviation sector. Is there is there uh, some history in your family that that pushed you in that direction? Uh, yeah, actually there is. I guess uh, my dad was a project manager for many years with Wright Pat Air Force Base out in Dayton, and he was able to get me. And I was around twenty. He was able to get me a student position with Air Force Base if I switched my major into engineering and so I mean it was kind of a well this will get me a job and you know it is kind of interesting now did does this mean you you uh you have a pilot's license or anything no I wish <laughs> <laughs> but but I'm pretty good at designing things I see so um when you were in college what was your beer experience like so um I drank a lot of crap for many years, uh, but I guess my first experience with craft beer was this little bar, again in Dayton, called Boston's. It was the first place I ever remember seeing craft beer on tap, you know, beyond things like imports. Sure. And... Uh, did you gravitate toward any specific uh, brewery or style? I, it was actually an import I got into. It was a uh, Hoogarden. Oh, nice! Yes, which is a uh, Belgian white style, and I, I kind of tried different ones here and there on subsequent trips to that particular bar, and then I wound up going to visit my brother and sister out in Virginia. They had 
already gotten out of Ohio. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> this is what you my, do. Right? Uh, you know, they say that there's a lot of astronauts from Ohio because Ohio just makes you want to leave the whole planet. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. You can't but, get much but anyway, fun. <laughs> but anyway, so I was, uh, I was visiting my sister and her family, and her husband had gotten like a little Mr. Beer kit. Oh. Where, where they even give you like the little plastic bottles and yes, stuff. Yes, it's gotten a lot of and people he, in big trouble. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But uh, it, it was decent enough where I was like, oh, you know what? I, I never thought about actually making beer, and this is decent. Absolutely. I and, mean, you're probably one, uh, you know, with an engineering background where you can follow directions and then you start thinking, oh, I can improve the efficiency here. I can I can play with that there. And you're not too nervous about it. At least that's what I would guess. Is that is that anything? Close? Yeah, that, that you hit the nail on the head, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's it, it, you're, you're probably reverse engineering everything. You're saying I'm going oh, to make this time. better. Yeah. So how did that apply to beer? Uh, reverse engineering beer is lots of fun. <laughs> First, you have to drink. There you go. <laughs> so sure, to sharpen your uh, wits. Right. And to get what flavors you need to reverse engineer. But uh, so, I, I mean, I started out like most guys do with the kits that you buy in the homebrew store. Dayton didn't have any homebrew stores nearby, so I ordered mine offline. Okay. Um, I, get, I, I went through a few kits. I was just doing extract batches in the very beginning with like little bags of grain that you steep for a minute. Yeah. And uh, I think it was, I, I think I stayed with that until I moved out here. Now, what brought you to Connecticut? Um, graduating college and with GM having just crashed at that point in time, there were no engineering jobs to be found out there. Dayton was a big GM town. So uh, I looked for about three or four months for a job out there with nothing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was fortunate enough to find one out here. I was kind of looking all up and down the East Coast. And here's where I wound up. So you found it. You had a job here. Uh, what were you What were you doing? As a, you were working in your field? Yeah. Yeah, I managed to actually get in my field. Uh, I had to bounce around a little bit. Uh, funny thing about engineering school is it teaches you the teaches you the background information, but doesn't teach you actually how to do the job. So there was a lot of being thrown into the fire and having to learn quickly, and sometimes not some, sometimes not as fast as what employers would like. And uh, to couple that, there's also uh, the nature of the engineering business, which is hire contractors and get rid of them when you're done with them. I see. So this was not uh, this didn't become like a real passion, uh, passionate job that, that you you said all oh, my heart and soul is in this. Right. I mean, I enjoyed the work sometimes. Uh, there's a lot of people I didn't enjoy, especially in the corporate environment, and I also didn't enjoy the. Uh, the use them and lose them kind of attitude with the contractors, which is what most of those places are only willing to hire as. Right. So you were seeing um, 
people who are probably very talented not getting their fair share and not getting any kind of stability. Did you right, think Right, exactly, at, like me. Right. At a certain point you you <laughs> probably thought um you know, I'm young, but I want to be able to have some security. Right. And at, at that point in time I was uh in the middle of raising a family and getting more and more frustrated with each switch. Uh getting better at brewing beer and getting lots of good comments about the beer I brewed. How was that working? You were uh, working at a, uh, did you graduate to a larger kit or were you working with a brew club? Yeah, I did. Uh, I got involved with a brew club out here pretty, pretty early on and uh, wound up getting involved with some guys that were opening a brewery that were, also, uh, running the brew shop that the homebrew club ran out of. So there's a lot of there's a lot of learning going on. Uh, I learned a lot about not only beer but every other type of fermentation that you could do. I I learned a lot from the guys that were opening their brewery about what they were doing, some of the pitfalls they ran into. Um, enough enough to where I was willing to try it. I mean, they're they're. There came, there once was a time where home brewers would, you know, never have thought I'm going to go pro with this, and then it took quite a bit. Now it seems like that that time between Mr. Beer and uh, you know a brick and mortar uh, situation is is getting smaller and smaller. What was it for you that flicked the switch that said, "Let's go pro"? Um, I mean, it was. In addition to all the situations that were happening at the time, the laws in Connecticut changed to be more taproom friendly for beer manufacturers. Prior to that, all you could do was give away free samples and hope someone bought your beer. Yeah, selling by the pint, I think it was 2012, that was a real game changer. Yeah, so that's really what flipped the switch. Did you envision what what did you envision first with with the witch doctor was it the beer uh or was it the the layout of the brewery Well I, it was definitely the beer first the layout of the brewery it we searched for a year and a half for a spot for the brewery originally it was going to be in South Windsor Oh wow So I we we searched all over the state and finally wound up in Southington. What was it about the location that uh, they that uh, made the decision for you? It, it was a really well-restored old brick building, a large old brick building, and it had like the perfect little alcove. It's like a three steps down into this perfect little room for the brew house. And you said, I I could see it being here. I mean, right. because... And fortunately, we'd done all kinds of looking at all kinds of other places and talked about, oh, well, this is going to work or this is not going to work and why. So I mean, we're looking at this place having gone through all the, well, this isn't going to work for this or that's not going to work for that. And so we were able to check a lot of boxes 
the, so yeah, the, I, so this one, this place benefited from all those other places that didn't quite fit the mold. If this was the first place you saw, you might not have necessarily recognized that you should jump on it. Right. Now, how many people do you work with at, at Witch Doctor now? So uh, I've got two guys working with me now as partners. And we've got three other folks that are on, a get, on and off bartenders, part-time bartenders, you know, when we're not all in isolation. Right, right. <laughs> Which is not going to be a permanent situation, but got to play it safe. Right. And when you were pulling it all together, did you say early on, because I'm just looking at your, your website, you list yourself as, was it head recipe designer? Um, did, did you already, did you, uh, already think, I'm not going to be the head brewer, I'm going to be uh, in a supporting kind of controlling uh, role, or how did that, how did that shake out? Um. It was sort of that. It was I wanted to maintain a role with the brewing, with the brewing, and that design aspect is something I did take away from the engineering. I I do love design. Uh, that's one of the things I love about music too. Tell me about that. I mean, you know, there are uh, parts of your brain, and I'm I'm certainly no expert, but I think there's a part of your brain that. When you're playing music, when you're writing music, for sure, I can vouch for that, that you, time stops and you just kind of become a different person. It's a hard kind of zen-like place to get to. It takes practice, takes a lot of failure. Uh, what, what's your musical journey been like and how has that been kind of similar or dissimilar to your beer passion? Um. It's actually been a much longer journey than the beer passion. I started music when I was four with the violin. Oh, cool. Was it formal and, training, or were you just uh, fiddling yeah, behind I did, the... Yeah, <clears throat> no, it was, it was formal training. My parents got me classes, or uh, private lessons. It was Suzuki-style training, which means that uh, when you're a kid, they don't teach you how to actually read the notes. They focus on getting you to use your ears more okay sure and uh i went i did that for a while i switched over to bluegrass style with that i got into school band with the saxophone i eventually got into the guitar and the rock band kind of thing and kind of never left that what about the sax and guitar was that um also through training uh the sax was trained through school band and uh, the guitar, I had had enough training by then. I kind of trained myself. Oh, absolutely. That's got to be the most fun. Yeah, it is. Did you start electric or acoustic? I I think I briefly started acoustic, and all the while saving up for an electric. Who was your uh, first big guitar hero? Uh... I think the first thing I started playing on guitar was probably Nirvana songs. So you set and the bar I, fairly low. I did. I did. <laughs> That's it, it a was good beginner thing. stuff. <laughs> That's a but good I, thing. But uh, I, I quickly got pretty deep into Metallica. 
Oh, and then the bar goes way up. I see. Yeah, it was quite a jump. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, not, not to take anything away from um, Nirvana, uh, because I think the idea is it's not about technical prowess or how many notes you can fit into a bar. I mean, obviously, their riffs are, you, you, we're going to be uh, recognizing them for, you know, 100 years. But, um, but that's interesting. So you weren't intimidated by um, James Hetfield and Kirk Hammett? I mean, yeah, I probably was a bit, but uh, I mean, I really got into the music. That's what I was into at the time. <laughs> Absolutely. So I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't intimidated by moving my fingers around. Nice. So, so shredding was definitely within the realm of possibility for you. Yeah, it, it happened relatively quickly, actually. So, were you with bands or were you playing alone? Um. Started out playing with a buddy of mine. We kind of we, we kind of learned together. I get I uh, broke my dad's guitar out of the closet and uh, gave him that, and we I played my acoustic and he played that, and or vice versa. I don't really remember. But I think uh, you do need we, to have somebody, yeah, to bounce off of. It's it's, it's kind yeah. of plateau pretty early when you're just playing but on your own. We both spent several years playing with each other and playing to the radio and then we eventually started getting involved with bands with each other separately were all you, through the years were you drawn to playing other people's music or uh, were you writing your own um in the beginning a little of both uh i've definitely gotten to the point where i focus more on writing my own he has uh he definitely has done that too, but he's probably done more other people's stuff than I have. And when you were um, uh, creating music, do you find that your approach to creating music is at all analogous to creating a recipe for beer? I do. I actually look at them in sort of similar terms, if you can sort of see that. I I think about how I want the music to sound i think about how i want the beer to taste and i kind of reverse engineer from there kind of is about that i mean for for um some people uh, some brewers they really do have that palette where they can sense you know generally what not just what the type of hop is and what the malt is but even how you know the brewer got to that consistency or got to that carbon is carbonation level. Um, I can do it. I can do that to a point. I'm not as good as some of these guys are. I can't. I can't sip a beer and go, oh, that's 100 percent that hop, that hop, and that hop. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. But if you tell me the hops, I can pick them out, and I can probably make a good guess of how they were used. When and I and I can. I can probably reverse engineer a grain bill fairly decently if it's, uh, depending on the beer. Now, when it comes to designing beers, um, are you uh, restless in the sense that you want to always be making something different uh, and go outside of uh, the parameters, or are you more of a purist where you try and hit the numbers within a specific style or some combination? So I've always been a very firm believer in riding the fence line with everything. 
What do you mean music by that? Music to your life. I like to ride the fence line of what's widely accepted and what's radical and new and extreme. Got it. So it's not like about being um, radical and extreme for its own sake. It's not about being traditional only. There's kind of a, an in-between ground. Yeah, and, and it is about those things for their own sake. They both have beauty to them, those ideas. And I think that they're both valid and they both should be applied. Um, and I think that if it's, if it's done well and you apply those traditional uh, those traditional ideas and those radical ideas, that people will really respond to that. People will, will respond to the familiar and appreciate the new and exciting. Can you give me an example of that with uh, one of your beers? Sure. Um, take a quick look at the board here. What do we have? So we've got <clears throat> we've got our bunny patch milkshake IPA. It's a strawberry milkshake IPA, and we we kind of that was born during the whole milkshake IPA fad. Sure. And we kind of did it in a way where the strawberry is very present, but it's not overpowering. And we didn't go crazy with any vanilla or any of that. So we've got strawberry and we've got lactose. And we actually use hops that really highlight the strawberry as well. And so rather than being super overpowering with the strawberry and the vanilla and the lactose and all of that, we've done something that's more of a balance. Something that's going to appeal to not only those people that are like, ooh, strawberry and milkshake, but those people that are just going to really appreciate a good, solid New England-style IPA. Which is interesting because that in itself is a fairly new you know, invention in the grand scope of beer, but almost does, become, does appear to be like a classic already, like a new classic. Right, you know, right. It's a baseline for and a lot the, of new drinkers. Yeah, and on the other side of the scope here, we've got Cocoa for Peanuts, which is you've got all these all the breweries that are doing a chocolate peanut butter stout or porter or something like that, right? Yeah. Ours is an amber. Ah, oh, all right. Different direction. Some you take something that people really like and are responding to and you throw a twist on it. Sure. And and with that, these mashups, so to speak, um, is this the kind of what, what, what's the what's the effect that you want to have, uh, you know, for the drinkers? Obviously, you want them to have another one, or you want them to like it. But, um, you know, what what message are you trying to send? Uh, we do our best to have something for everybody, something everybody can enjoy, and uh, and we like to push the envelope a bit, but we don't like to get too crazy with it. We don't. I mean, we're not doing. Uh, we're not doing the crazy sugar beers that some folks out there are doing. Right, the pastry stouts and the... Uh, yeah, and, exactly. Well, a lot of these, you know, from my perspective, are palate killers. Um, you know, even some of the um, 
Well, when the when the New England IPAs are not done well, uh, they can certainly be palate killers. Anything in the extreme can be. I remember having um, a beer of yours that was supposed to be, uh, I think it was pegged as a margarita beer. And I thought, I am not going to like this, but I am going to try this. And that that try uh, led me to, ha- to having a whole pint and just being absolutely uh, enjoying every sip. Um, is is that one still uh, is that one still around? Do you know you know which one I'm talking about? Oh yeah, I remember that one. That one was the Ghost Across the Border. It was very clever, and it was again one of those that yeah, as you say, it's it was a mix, it was a mashup, it was it, but it was entirely approachable. It certainly was not uh, like a science experiment. Right, and and that one did well uh, for its time. Unfortunately, the Gosa seems to have been a fad, Mm. and uh, that particular beer, unfortunately, wasn't a beer that transcended the fad like the Bunny Patch seems to. That's interesting, yeah. So it's (laughs) it's kind of like you're smart enough to know when to uh, pull back, uh, even if it is something that you're you know, attached to, is that, is that something that you run into sometimes where you say, I love yeah, this exactly. And that's, and, th- and that's something that, that I feel like I got out of music as well is it, it in the plainest terms, no one to hold them and no one to fold them. I, I, did you make that up? That, that sounds really profound. <laughs> or, or <laughs> I think, I heard I think Kenny Rogers <laughs> stole it from you. Exactly. I mean, you throw a bunch of darts at the board and you see what sticks where. Sure. Now, and you, and you, I mean, you try to aim as best you can, yeah. but I mean, sometimes you hit, sometimes you don't hit as great. You try not to miss. My thanks go out to Josh. You can learn more about Witch Doctor at witchdoctorbrewing.com. You can reach out to me at beer.snob at yahoo.com. Feel free to leave a Venmo tip, William-Sis. Until next time, sip well.